Hi, it's Casey. Let's shine on. I like to start my day with a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Charles Duhigg from the New York Times. GQ calls him the master of the life hacks. He's going to teach us how to be truly productive. Charles' latest bestseller is out in paperback. It's called Smarter, Faster, Better, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity. So, Charles, how are we doing in the productivity department? Well, I, we're not doing great. I think one of the big uh, um, sort of tests you can do with yourself is to think when you woke up this morning, how long it took you to check your iPhone. Right? If the answer is that you rolled over and you checked it within the first five minutes, then that probably means that you have a more intimate relationship with your smartphone than you do with whoever else happens to be in bed with you. And that's it's not a great sign. No. One of the it's it's important to to have some sort of balance there, and that's kind of what the book is about. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, that's what my husband does, and I know I'm not alone in saying yeah. this. The first thing he does is look at his phone. Yeah. So yeah. I, no. And yeah. In fact, a huge number of people do at this point, and I think that what this sort of indicates is that we, in the last couple of years, particularly in the last decade, as the economy has begun changing, we've started creating a. a thinking of busyness and productivity as being synonymous. And that's not really right, right? Well, you can be busy all day long and not get anything important done. And so I think the important thing is to help us realize what actually makes us productive as opposed to simply taking up time. Simply sending a bunch of emails all day long doesn't mean that you've gotten what gotten what's done, what's most important to you. Yeah. And so the idea behind this book was to study the most productive people and companies and try and understand why they are so much more productive than everyone else. All right. Can you give us a few clues? Of course, we want everybody to pick up now in paperback, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity, but maybe give us a little taste of how we can recognize oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Everyone knows when they've had a productive day, when they've gotten something done that was really important to them. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the book is about the making of Frozen. Everyone knows Frozen, the movie by Disney, is this huge hit. But what people don't recognize is that it was near the brink of catastrophe just months before it appeared in theaters. But the way that Disney was able to make that movie into success is that they have a very particular way of thinking about creativity. They believe that creativity is a process, that you can make creativity productive if you use a certain method, and that anyone can be creative, anyone can be innovative, as long as they understand how. And at the core of that is understanding that the most creative ideas are oftentimes old ideas, old cliches that are mixed together in new ways. For instance, when they were making Frozen, they had a big meeting at the sort of this big moment of crisis. And they went around the table and they asked everyone, look, what are some old ideas that we're trying to get at in this movie? And one of them, of course, was princesses, because Disney knows princesses better than you know any other company on Earth. Right. But as they were going around the table, there was an unusually large number of women who were working on that film. In fact, one of the directors was the first female co-director in Disney's history. And as they were going around, people at the table started talking about how their relationships with their sisters were really important. Now, talking about sisterhood isn't particularly new, but once they had these two ideas, princesses and sisters, it sort of unlocked this potential. They could start saying, well, what if, what if instead of having a prince save the princess, what if the princesses saved each other because they're sisters? And if we did that, then we could, we could actually make the prince into the villain, but we don't have to reveal that till the end of the movie. And that ended up becoming Frozen. Wow. But it, what's, what's important there is to understand that there's a science and a process to things like creativity that makes them more productive. Yeah. And that if you understand that science, you can use it for your own ends. I had a business meeting the other day that really floored me. I met in person 
with uh, the client and all of the advertising people and all of the people who are going to be involved in the promotion from different radio stations, we all met in the same room, and that hasn't happened to me in decades. But that's productivity huh. when you're meeting face-to-face and exchanging ideas sometimes, yes? That's absolutely right. Or, or take, take how people write to-do lists, right? Almost all of us write to-do lists. Yeah. And your to-do list probably looks like mine, used to, which is like just a, a list of tasks that I want to get done. So we use to-do lists as an external memory aid. But if you look at studies of the most productive people and the most successful people, they tend to write to-do lists in a very different way. They use their to-do list to force themselves to think about their priorities. So they tend to have to-do lists that only have a couple of items on them, their most important task for today, for this week, and for this month. And the reason why that's so important is because that way, if you've been, say, returning emails for the last 45 minutes, and you look at your to-do list, and it says the most important thing for today is to write that memo you've been putting off for two weeks, then it spurs you to close your email program and start working on that memo. In other words, the most productive people, they tend to use their to-do list as a way to force themselves to think about what their priorities ought to be, rather than just having a list, because our brain has a natural instinct to look for the easiest item on that list and to check it off right away. And this is kind of the big idea that's at the core of Smarter, Faster, Better, which is that almost all the studies about productivity, about successful people, what they show is that we tend to be more successful when we build mental habits that allow us to think more, to think more about our goals, to think about our priorities, to think about how to be more creative, to think more about why our team comes together or falls apart. That inserting thinking into your day is the way that we become more successful. But that's hard to do. So you have to find ways to, to make it easier. Wow, inserting thinking into our day. Amazing. Because I get a little endorphin hit whenever I check something off my to-do list, but usually it's not something I needed to do at that instant, and the most pressing thing is somewhere down the list, you know, farther That's down exactly the list. Right. I didn't want to That's look exactly at That's exactly right. It. Yeah. And in fact, we know from studies that, that about 15% of people, they'll actually write something on their to-do list that they've already done, because <laughs> it feels so good to cross it off. It does. It feels like we're getting somewhere. But this is all about priorities, like you said, with your life because we can waste so much time being busy and not being productive to really get us to our goals. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and understanding, recognizing that difference between busyness and productivity, that's critical. And another chapter in the book talks about motivation and the science and neurology of motivation. And it talks about how the Marine Corps boot camp has been reformed to teach recruits how to see chores as choices, how to link small tasks to bigger goals. Because one of the things that we know is that the part of our brain that gets activated that allows motivation to to emerge, it's triggered when we feel like we're in control, like when we're making a choice. And so the more that you can train yourself to to make a decision, for instance, to say, I have to I have to wash the dishes, but I'm gonna start by choosing to do the plates, or I'm gonna choose to do it at seven o'clock or 7.10 rather than doing it right now. The more that you make yourself feel in control, the more you get you spark this part of the brain of the striata that allows motivation to emerge. And it's just small little things like this, but understanding how motivation emerges, where it resides, that gives us more control over it. Right. But we need that time for thinking so we can make the choices and then kick on that part of the brain that supports motivation. That's exactly right. Wow. I'm loving this because, you know, 
I'm in a Facebook group right now. We're all trying to lose weight, and we don't know where the motivation comes from. So it comes from control and choices. All right. Well, and, and it also comes from linking these small activities to bigger goals. So, for instance, one cancer researcher I was talking to, he told me that he hated grading students' papers. And so he would do this mantra before he started grading students' papers each night, which was he would say, okay, if I grade these papers, then the university can collect tuition dollars. And if the university collects tuition dollars, they can pay for my lab. And if they pay for my lab, I'm going to be able to hopefully someday cure cancer. So by grading these students' papers, I'll be able to someday hopefully cure cancer. Now, it's kind of ridiculous to say that, right? And it's ridiculous as someone who has a... PhD, MD would need to do that to motivate in order to grade papers. But I think the point there is that by linking small tasks to bigger goals, it triggers our motivation, what scientists call goal-directed thinking. So for instance, on your Facebook page about losing weight, one of the things that you should probably do is say, I'm not just trying to lose weight, I'm trying to lose weight for a reason, right? I'm trying to lose weight because I want to see my grandchildren get married, or because I know how great it's going to feel to put on a bathing suit this summer, or because I know I have a health condition and, and I know that this is going to make me feel better. The more you can link the challenge today or the chore today to a big goal that you really care about, the easier it is to motivate to do the small thing. Well, I'd love to talk more, but I have to go make a Facebook post. Thank you to (laughs) Charles Duhigg, the author of The Power of Habit, now New York Times bestseller, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity. Thanks for some time today. Where can we go to find out more? You can you can Google me or you can Google the power of habit or smarter, faster, better. Or I'd love if anyone wants to send me an email. I'm a reporter at the New York Times. If they just look me up at the Times, they'll see me there. Now, is that real news? That's real news. That's real news every single day. Forgive me. I could not help myself. He is a gem. Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Duhigg. He'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to know if you'd like a copy of his book, Smarter, Faster, Better. Send a note from KCRadio.com. Now spring has sprung and soon the snow will be gone and the ticks will start to use us as transport vehicles and lunch. Scott Santarella, CEO of the Global Lyme Alliance, has some news to share on the tick-borne illness Lyme disease and how finding a treatment and a cure is personal. So I've spent 30 years of my career working in nonprofit management and fundraising. Most of that time has been in oncology uh, research disease organizations, and uh, I had a very dear friend of mine come down with Lyme disease twice. He ended up passing away from something else, but um, I think that his Lyme disease had something to do with him getting sicker. And so when I had had an opportunity to join Global Lyme Alliance as their CEO. I thought it would be a great chance for me to make a difference in a disease that has incredible injustices associated with it. The Global Lyme Alliance, is that just what it sounds? Is this agencies all over the world? We're actually uh, headquartered here in Greenwich, Connecticut, but we do fund research all over the world and we do actually do programming and educational uh, programs and uh, awareness and marketing worldwide. A big focus of our, our efforts are here in the States, but there are issues with Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases in Australia, the UK, uh, Germany, parts of Europe, um, South America. So, you know, it is a global epidemic and one that we're trying to address on a worldwide basis, yes. Let's talk about the epidemic. This just came out of the blue, it seems, maybe 15 years ago. Is, is my perception right? Yeah, historically, Lyme disease has been around really since the beginning of time, but wasn't really at uh, epidemic levels until the last maybe 10 to 15 years. And the CDC just recently up the numbers from a couple years ago they were saying it was about 35,000 people a year get diagnosed with the disease now it's over 330,000 people 
get diagnosed with the disease. So we've got a, a serious issue at hand, and you know we're trying to do our best to uh, identify options to uh, improve overall diagnostic abilities associated with the disease and obviously treatment pathways. Uh, right now, most of the treatments are antibiotics, and they don't always work. 330,000 people diagnosed every year, and that's a huge jump, right, Correct. from past years. What has happened to our bodies that we're not fighting this off like we used to? Well, I think part of it has just been better overall reporting on the disease, and that was one of the reasons for the jumps. The other issue is Lyme disease is a what they call a ghost disease. I mean, it masks itself as other diseases in your body. So you may have headaches or flu-like symptoms, arthritis symptoms, even symptoms associated with early onset dementia or Alzheimer's and you know things like Crohn's and colitis and other issues that you have that you may think are those diseases, but when you take the treatments that are available for those illnesses, they don't seem to work and they seem to pile up and get worse. And oftentimes that's a a precursor to someone who probably has Lyme disease and just doesn't know it. Wow. And the challenge challenge we have with that is we don't have a real good diagnostic tool that definitely says yes or no that you have Lyme and you don't always find the bullseye bite that most people are familiar with. Right. In fact, many people who get diagnosed with Lyme disease or get Lyme disease never even find the bite or the tick. So, all right. So you think for the most part then the 330,000 people being diagnosed, that's just because more people are getting tested now. I think it's more people are aware of it, more people are being tested, and and actually it's a growing epidemic. I mean, we're finding Lyme disease cases now in every state of the country. Um, Huge issues, obviously, in the Northeast, but all up and down the Atlantic coast. Big issues in Florida now, and a tremendous amount of uh, incidence increases in the Midwest, especially Wisconsin and Michigan, and quite frankly, uh, California, especially Northern California. Huge issues with Lyme disease in those areas of the country. All right, and these... Texas, too. And these come from a tick? Comes from a tick, yep. And Lyme disease is the most most common form, but there's other what they call co-infections of the disease that you can get from tick-borne tick-borne bites. Mm-hmm. I think everyone listening knows someone who's had Lyme disease. I have a girlfriend, right. and she's young, and she's had a hip replacement because yep. of what Lyme disease did to her years ago. Can you talk about some of the things that happen when a person has Lyme disease? One of the biggest challenges that we have is if someone's diagnosed early and you get you catch Lyme disease at the acute phase, oftentimes antibiotics will work and you'll be okay, but we've got probably about 40% of the people who are diagnosed with Lyme disease are what we call chronic sufferers or, or persistent sufferers where the disease actually uh, takes many, many years to diagnose, gets embedded in their immune system, system um, and throughout their body and starts to wreak havoc within the overall um, body structure. And so you have people who've been diagnosed when they were, you know, late adolescent, early teens, and they find that they're incredibly sick into their 20s. And it's not until then that they find out they have Lyme disease. And by that time, they have a tremendous amount of issues, neurological symptoms where they have brain fog and can't think properly, incredible fatigue, tiredness. And then you have issues where some people uh, like your friend get Lyme disease so bad that they have hip replacements and or need knee replacements because of joint pain and, and other issues they're suffering from. So this, this chronic form of the disease is really what is baffling a lot of the scientists, mm-hmm. and it's a real area of focus for us in terms of the research that we fund. Because the only way to protect yourself against it is to cover up, you know, maybe wear repellent. Yeah, you're right. Cover up, wear repellent, and check yourself. You know, what they say is if you're outside for extended period of times and you think you're in, you know, tick-infested areas, one of the things they do recommend is, to, you know, to dress 
to take off all your clothes and throw them in the dryer. The heat of the dryer kills any ticks that will be on your clothes. Um, and then jump in the shower real quick and try to wash whatever may be on you, off you. But it's also tick checks. You know, check uh, areas of your body where ticks tend to, to find their ways, armpits, you know, soft parts of your body, your legs, obviously, uh, ankles if you've been outside. Repellents do work. And it's more or less just being aware, you know, yeah. being aware of your surroundings. Don't be afraid to go outside, but just be, you know, very conscious of it. if you've been outside to check yourself. That's now, sort of certainly the first step. Let me ask you this. I have pets. I'm always pu- pulling ticks off my pets. Are they the same ticks that cause the Lyme they are. disease? They are. Often ticks that are that big are more of the adult tick. The ticks that really cause problems are the nymph ticks, and those are the ones that are really hard to see. You know, they're smaller than a pinhead. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones once they latch onto you, and if they've been on you long enough, uh, you know, will cause problems. Um, but we do have um, an interesting dynamic where if you look at Lyme disease in the human populations across the country, you've got these pockets. If you look at Lyme disease and its impact on dogs, it covers the country all over the place. Mm-hmm. So we've got sort of this saying, you know, what's on the other end of the leash? You know, if you've got a pet and your pet's on your couch or in your bed and spends time outside, mm-hmm. you know, the chances of you getting Lyme disease are, are better than you not getting it. And so you have to be really aware. We're also working with some uh, of the veterinarian schools in this country because dogs have vaccines for Lyme disease and dogs also have some treatments for Lyme disease. So our dogs are being treated for Lyme disease better than than the actual owners are. Yeah. My dog, Rosie, she had Lyme disease, oh, I guess four or five years ago. But now whenever she has her blood tested, she still tests positive. Interesting. And I know with with human tests, there's a thing about tests not being accurate. Like you can have a false positive or a false negative. What's up with that? The disease, the bacteria itself is very hard to identify. So in the the tests that they currently have and in the blood tests that they take, they're probably about 55% accurate because the disease is, is like I said, this tricky sort of bacteria. It's very elusive. Mm. We are working with some uh, organizations and some researchers that are trying to use, you know, the improvement in overall technology that we have today and computer models to try to do a better job of identifying and diagnosing the disease earlier and, quite frankly, trying to identify those that have the chronic form of the disease, whether or not they still have it in their body. And Mm. that's one of the areas that we're really trying to focus on because those people tend to be suffering the worst when it comes to this disease. Talking to Scott Santorella, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Lyme Alliance. So I guess the big message we want to put out today is two, off the top of my head. One is if you don't feel good, ask your doctor to test for Lyme's, yes? Yes. And two, there is a Global Lyme Alliance active in the world and headquartered in Greenwich that is trying to help us out. Those are the two big messages. And we've got an upcoming event that I think we'd like to make people aware of. We have a, uh, a gala happening on Saturday, April 1st at the Hyatt Regency in Greenwich. And uh, if anyone's interested in participating, all of the funds that we raise that evening after expenses goes to support research and related efforts for the organization. And um, it's, a, it's a fun night. It's a dinner, dancing, and uh, you know your typical sort of black tie gala. But it's a lot of fun, and it's an opportunity for us to raise awareness and to bring some uh, educational information to people, uh, especially in the Fairfield County community and Westchester County communities that are suffering from this disease. For more, we go to globallimealliance.org. Scott Santarella, the Global Lyme Alliance. He's doing good work. Okay, are you handy? Are you motivated? Would you like to start your own business? Eileen Caulfield did just that when her three gorgeous kids all went off to school. She became the task fairy of the Hudson Valley. I've always been pretty skilled at organizing and multitasking and kind of handling whatever's thrown my way. And people of the years who know me have noticed. 
friends have always found me to be pretty resourceful. Obviously, having children, you're thrown a lot of things at once. So uh, I think I honed these skills from being a stay-at-home mom over the years. So I just I enjoy tackling problems and finding practical solutions. And, and that's how the Taskberry business evolved. You know, people suggested that I start thinking about this for a business. It just started from there. So, so you started this service and you are a task fairy here in the Hudson Valley. What kind of tasks are you doing? Well, I'm based out of Cold Spring. I service the entire Hudson Valley. Basically, really anything that people need. I I do a lot of things for people who work outside of the home, you know, busy people who just don't have enough hands to get everything done. So that could be anything from running errands for them that they don't have time to do, you know, grocery shopping, that sort of thing. House sitting for people who travel a lot, working for people who own a small business or even work from home, doing light administrative work, organizing their office or, you know, coming in just for special projects. People who are selling their homes or uh, people that maybe have an influx of things that they've inherited from, um, from another family member they need to sort of sort out and organize. People who are in transition, either maybe mothers who need to sort of declutter their homes from all the toys and sundries that, that accompany having children to people who are downsizing and sort of just straighten out what they have and figure out what they need to keep and what they need to let go of. This is good news for a lot of reasons. One, because you offer so many different services. And two, I know there's somebody listening right now who's thinking, I need help with a project. (laughs) Well, ta-da, the task fairy is here. That's the thing, right? I mean, most people cannot afford to hire just staff ongoing. But I think we've all been in the position that we think, oh, gosh, there just could be two of me. A couple of weeks ago, someone asked me to install a a cat door for them because they were traveling. And they realized that their cat needs to be able to get in and outside the house while they're gone. Mm -hmm. So, uh... So I did, you know, some light carpentry work over there, which is pretty fun. Every day is something new. Which just makes it really fun. So far, I have to say, the Task Ferry of Hudson Valley has been pretty well received by everybody. Right. Um, there's been a strong, steady amount of referrals from just an informal network of people. And it's been really rewarding to help alleviate people's stress and anxiety and feel like I, I improved their day or improved their week or, you know, took something off of their plate. And how do you get paid? Do you, like, put a bill under their pillow? <laughs> No, uh, generally uh, speaking, we work out the fee depending upon what needs to be done. I mean, my prices are pretty reasonable. I have a list of services on my Facebook page, the uh, Task Area of Hudson Valley. And people, you know, usually pay that day. But of course, you know, there's some wiggle room there. Sometimes people have called me from out of town. They pay me either when they get back or through PayPal or, you know, QuickPay or whatever. Not under their pillow, though. That's a, that's a different sort of service that the task ferry does not provide. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see being out of town and you think, oh, my God, if, you know, if we don't open the windows or turn off the water, whatever it may be. A woman called me from Mexico because she didn't think that there were going to be any more snowstorms, and there was. She had somebody subletting her, her place, and so she needed me to just sort of orchestrate uh, getting a plow there and, uh, you know, helping this woman out who uh, was living there, you know, temporarily. And she, she needed to be able to leave the house. Wow. <laughs> oh, so that's two feet of snow. That was sort of just a spur of the moment sort of thing. But that's kind of what makes this fun for me is that every week it's a little bit different. 
And nobody has to feel committed to uh, an ongoing hire. One more time, what's your Facebook page? The Taz Ferry of the Hudson Valley. There's a list of services there. People get to get an idea of the things that I do. But there's also, of course, miscellaneous tab because sometimes tasks don't fit into a category. The Task Ferry of the Hudson Valley on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, can also be reached by taskferryemail at gmail.com. Eileen Caulfield, the Task Ferry of the Hudson Valley. May she sprinkle her magic on you. It's Casey. I'll see you at the Awaken Fair in Terrytown this weekend. And May 7th is the Spring Shine On Expo. Details await at caseyradio.com. Our thought for the week is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. The purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. <laughs> see you next week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at caseyradio.com. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show next Sunday morning from 100.7 WHUD.